open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament book of Romans. We are going to be in Romans 7 this morning in a message that I have titled simply Free Time. And we're continuing in our sermon series. Our sermon series is called It's About Time. We're studying time together. We focused week one in this sermon series on family time. And last week we looked at me time. Today we're focusing on free time. But I'm not going to talk to you about the time that you're not on the clock. I'm not talking to you about the time that is all yours and you're not devoted to work or church or to to anything else where you can do whatever you want. No, instead today we're going to be talking about your current imprisonment and recognize that in order for something to be free, we first have to acknowledge that it can be or has been enslaved. If you ask people, many people in America, what makes America so great? People will tell you, oh, it's because of our freedom because we're a free country. You hear that a lot. And it, it may be true, and it very well may be the number one answer that people give, but you know that 46.2% of all nations in the world are free. Why can we call ourselves a free country? We can do that because we recognize that freedom is an absence of being dominated. Little over 25% of all the nations in the world are under control of authoritarian regimes, and they are not free. You can only recognize freedom when you recognize the opposite of freedom. You can only value freedom once you recognize the disgust of slavery. In Romans... We hear the Apostle Paul, and we read his his words, and he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he's talking about spiritual freedom and slavery. He's talking about the slavery to his body. He's talking about the limits of his flesh, the confines of his moral person. Let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul who wrote about a third of the New Testament, is very similar to you and I. Paul was absolutely human like we are. Paul got hungry the way that we do. He's just a guy. He's an apostle. He would get cold. He would get angry. He would find himself in moments of pure joy. He would He would find himself at times where he's fighting urges of the flesh and of of the worldly mess that he lived within. But he also had this very deep, deep desire to be a really good Christian. He had this deep desire to show his love to God. And he showed his love to God. He showed his witness to Jesus through his public actions. You could tell by watching Paul who he was serving. 
But Paul recognized something else, something that I bet that you and I recognize as well. And he's going to write about it. We're in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse number 14. We're going to lay, lay down this baseline. Paul says this, and let me tell you, next week things are going to be up here on the screen for you, okay? It's one of those things in the works. He says this in Romans chapter 7, verse number 14. Paul writes, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am too human, a, a slave to sin. Let me break that down for you for a moment. Paul is referring to the law of God. In our world, he's referring to the Bible. He's referring to God's direction for our lives. And Paul is saying that the problem is not with God's rules. The problem is not with the Bible because God's law is spiritual. He's saying God's law is good. He says, the problem is with me. We refer to the word of God as being inerrant. Inerrant simply means to be without error. If we were to put the word of God up on a scale here, we were to put you and I on a scale over here, and we were to measure errors, the scale's like this, right? I, it is without error. But it's not the Bible that is full of troubles and problems, but rather it is, it is us. And I don't want you to get the impression that, that if you are a, a Christian, that you live outside the reach of sin. Sometimes we have that thought that I come to Christ, sin can't touch me anymore. That doesn't happen. You don't, if you're a Christian, live outside the reach of sin. I don't live outside the reach of sin. Being a Christian does not make sins any less wrong. The problem is with me. It's with us. It's with humans. We are slaves to sin. You see where I'm going? We're talking about freedom today, right? I'm going to get there. Follow along. Stay with me. The problem is with us. I wanted us to get into the mindset of the Apostle Paul for a minute as he's writing this. Paul recognizes that his struggle is not simply for those who are not saved. Sometimes Christians might think, you know what, that sin struggle, that's, that's only for those who haven't come to Christ yet. That's far, far from the truth. As a matter of fact, the struggle that Paul is talking about in this chapter is almost exclusively for Christians or those who are about to be Christians because the struggle doesn't exist if you don't recognize the difference between what you are supposed to be doing and what you are doing. Follow me into somewhat of a confusing text. The next verse in... Romans chapter 7, I mean, verse number 15, Paul writes this, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good, so I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living within me that does it. Let's work through this for a moment. Paul is saying, 
man, I don't get it. I gave my life to Christ. I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't get it. I can't understand myself. I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it. I'm wondering, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but am I the only one in this room that has ever felt that way? Like, I want to do the right thing, but I don't do it. Saved? Yes. Did that take me out of the temptation of sin? No. Instead of doing what I know is right, I do things that I hate. I don't know if you found yourself in that position before. Let's be honest. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be real with ourselves. Do you ever do things that you know you should not do? Do you ever feel that struggle between what your heart knows that you should do and what your flesh is telling you is okay? You know the struggle I'm talking about? Do you know why you recognize that difference? It's because you recognize God's law. The only reason that you know that there is a difference, it's because you know what the standard is. Because you know what correct is, and you know, I don't have to tell you because I know this too, that my actions don't meet the standard. Paul is, Paul is an apostle, a third of the New Testament, and he's one of the most righteous people who ever lived. And he's not only calling out his sin, but he is, he is calling out and making known this deep internal struggle that he is dealing with. We are reading the words in Romans 7, of a very, very devoted Christian who is living in a world full of sin that's all around him, that is full of lust all around him. He is deep in his Christian faith and he is struggling with sin. This is a man whose heart is full, full of a desire to please God. But just like you and me, this heart is fighting a constant battle. It is in a constant state of conflict. You ever recognize your heart being in a constant state of conflict? I do things that I'm going to look back on and I'm going to feel guilty about. And I know that my actions are against God's law. I know that. For those of you joining us for the first time, we are a, uh, we're a note-taking church, and if you have something to write with, write down some notes. I'm going to give you some points. Next week, they'll be on the screen, and I'll give you something that you can actually write with. For those of you at home, point number one in your notes this morning is this, accepting the fact that we act in ways, oppose, uh, ways that oppose God's plan for our lives it demands that we accept the understanding that God's plan is moral and correct. I know that's long. I'm going to read it to you again. 
accepting the fact that we act in ways that are opposed to God's plan for our lives, that demands that we accept the understanding that God's plan is moral and correct. You know whose plan is not moral and correct? Mine. Please don't live by my plan. God has given us a moral and correct plan. You know, you know that guilt that you feel in those moments? And it might be that moment that you're all alone and you are the only person on the face of the earth who knows that you just broke one of God's laws. You know that guilt that you feel in that moment? You feel that because your actions go against what you know or what your heart knows is correct. You wouldn't feel any guilt if you didn't have the knowledge that what you are doing is against God's law. Guilt is to the soul what pain is to the body. It tells you that something is wrong. I've mentioned this numerous times at our church and from this pulpit or whatever pulpit we happen to be on, wherever our church is on that particular Sunday, that church is not a place where angels go to hang out. You're not going to see anyone come in here next week and kind of adjust their halo, right? Put their, tuck their wings in and then come in and just sit down and enjoy church. That's not what the church is, but rather we are a hospital for souls, you don't go to the hospital without a reason. You don't come here to church without a reason. Let's be honest, just by being here today, there is an acknowledgement that spiritually something is not right. Sometimes we might go to the doctor and we might have difficulty explaining exactly what it is that isn't right. I, I don't feel good. My head's just kind of not all there. I don't know how to explain it. But I'm still talking to the doctor because I know that there is something that is off. Every Christian will tell you that the battle is real. Your faith and your Christian walk, they're never at a standstill. If you're aware that you are standing still in your faith, then the enemy is winning. A Christian's life is always in constant conflict. Paul writes this in Galatians. He's writing to another church in Galatia. He says this in Galatians 5, verse number 17. He says, the sinful nature wants to do evil. This is the sinful nature inside you which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit gives us the desire, desires that are opposite of what sinful, natural desires want. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Today, this morning, we're focusing on free time. But let me say something that is so important. Spiritually, you never have free time. Spiritually, 
Your time belongs to a God. I've told you in the past, we've talked about the difference between uppercase G God and lowercase G gods. The God of the Bible, uppercase G God, the first member of the Trinity, God Almighty, this is the God that we serve. Lowercase g gods can be anything. That could be money. Anything that's going to get your attention or your, your worship or get your focus off of God in heaven, uppercase g God. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's status or recognition or, or, or lifestyle. These are all idols. These are lowercase g gods. You are worshiping a God with every moment of your life, know it or not. There is only one God, however, who can set you free from the bondage of sin and the effects of sin. There is only one God that creates truth. There is only one God that created you. There is only one God worth your worship. There is only one worth your time, only one worth your servitude. There's an old hymn that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. God's Word, the Bible, it very well may, and it does reveal our sin, and it does convict us of sin, but let me tell you what the Bible itself, the book, does not do. It does not conquer and subdue sin. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that sin in your life has been conquered or that it has been subdued or that temptation to sin is any less. What it does mean, however, is that your sin is forgiven. But being forgiven... Listen, this is really important. Being forgiven is not an excuse or a license to continue in sin. Amen? Amen. It's not. If we thought that that was true, we would not be at a spiritual hospital today. God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Christ style that God has appointed to us, has assigned to us, this is what exposes to us our sin. But it doesn't shake off the burden of sin. We still have to work at that. That still takes time. What Paul is saying is that he recognizes that he is still sinning but his new inner self, his new heart, watch this, no longer approves of the sin that is still happening. We've talked about, Jesus said, you have to be born again, right? This is the new self that Paul is talking about. My new self doesn't approve like my old self did. Paul's making this distinction between the heart and the flesh. Previously, 
in, a, in old life, now remember Paul is a guy who would go around and round up Christians and throw them in jail. He is a guy that if he walked in here pre-Christ, B.C., before Christ in his life, that we would fear because he would be rounding us up. But Paul is saying that in my old life before Christ, I may have approved of the same things. My heart and my flesh would have approved of the same thing. My new life in Christ, there is definitely a separation. My heart knows this isn't right. My flesh continues to want to do it. What's the difference? The difference is if I approve of that or not. Paul says, I am a new man in Christ, and I know that the old is washed away, but I still seem to be sinning. Why? Wonder, have you ever wondered that? Like, I know that I'm a new person. And I know that I still have temptation, and I'm still struggling with it. Why? Why am I still doing what I know I shouldn't be doing? There is a deep misconception that if you're going to come up here after service today and I'm going to pray with you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and, and then in, in three weeks or four weeks you're going to come back and, and you're going to be baptized, you're going to go down in the water and you're going to rise up a new, a, a new person in Christ and then all of your sin is gone. Your sin is forgiven, but sin is still in your life. It is still a temptation. It is still now, at that moment, more than ever, it is a battle. You think that Satan himself is going to leave you alone just because you come to Jesus Christ? You think there's like a sign that says, Christian here, don't bother him, I got him. Uh-uh. No. Come back with me in the Romans 7, moving into verse number 18. Paul says this, For I know, for I know that good does not dwell in me, that is my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I'm going to read that one more time. Paul says, For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. I'm willing, but the doing of the good, that's, uh, that's not present in me. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Let's talk about that, but I want you to write that, this down. This is point number two in your notes this morning. Christians always battle sin. Satan loves conflict. He loves that. That is a great weapon. He can cause conflict at your work. He can cause conflict amongst your family, at home, and even more. He loves this one, causing conflict between your heart and your flesh. If he can get that conflict inside you, oh, he loves doing that. I don't know what it is in your life that is the habitual habit that... that 
happens to be against biblical principles in your life, but if you're here today and you can think about what that is, I promise you, you are living in conflict. So was the Apostle Paul. He was living in conflict. Let me tell you what the difference is. Sin does not flow out of the new redeemed you when you come to Christ, but rather it flows out of the unredeemed humanness and flesh that is you. Your soul is made new, but let's face it, your body is your body. Your humanness is still your humanness. This incarcerated, unredeemed humanness, you still have to live with. Paul doesn't say that he is still in the flesh, but rather he says that now the flesh is in me. He's saying this sinful flesh, yeah, that's, that's part of me. Paul is saying that sin no longer controls the whole man as it does with an unbeliever, but it does hold captive the believer's members of his fleshly body. Hold captive. If you are being spiritually held captive, would it be fair to agree that we are not entirely free? Let's talk about members for a moment. I'm holding up five members of my hands right now. These are fleshly members of my hand. My arm is a fleshly member. My, my, my leg is a fleshly member of my body. This is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, my soul has been redeemed, but there is still sin that lives in my members. Let's look at that habitual sin, though, of the believer or even the non-believer today. Who controls your members? Your voice is a member. Who has control over the words that you say? Your fists can be a member. Who has control over your anger? All of the parts of your body are considered members. Who or what has control over all of the parts of your body? Do you know what sin does for a Christian? Sin contaminates Christians and frustrates their inner desires to obey the will of God. Let me say that again. Sin contaminates Christians and frustrates their inner desires to obey the will of God. Why am I speaking only about Christians? You know, because if, 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 you're not, if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved, 
if, if, you don't, if you don't possess a redeemed soul, you very well might not have a desire to obey God. Would it be fair to say if, if, if you haven't been touched by that, by that Spirit of God, desire to obey that, that deep desire might not be there. But you have brought this morning a wounded soul inside your fleshly body here to a spiritual hospital for a reason. Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. Our flesh, our body, I want you to look at it like this. It actually serves as like a base camp, like a headquarters for sin. Your flesh, your body, it's, it's where sin operates in the Christian life. Because of Adam's fall from grace in the garden, he caused every single one of us to live this life towards death. Jesus came to save your soul. For those who, who come to Christ, yes, saving your soul, but your flesh, even though you've given your life to Christ, your flesh is still this petri dish for sin, and your flesh can, can become thoroughly contaminated. Your flesh is the part of the believer's being that remains unredeemed. It's going to be a glorious day when we all get to heaven and get a brand new redeemed body, amen? Some of you are saying, yeah, I can walk again. I can run again. I can jump again. I can play ball again. I'm ready for that new body. It'd be nice to have a redeemed body with no sin attached to it, amen? Let's go all the way back to creation for a moment. Moses writes this in Genesis right before the flood of Noah's ark. We read this in Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So, God makes this decision. He says, okay, I'm going to start over. I'm going to wipe this out, and I'm going to start over. I'm going to save this group right here. Has Noah build an ark, floats on the, floats on the water. Then in verse number 8, or chapter number 8, after the, the ark lands, family gets out, they build this sacrifice to God, the, this altar, and God says this in Genesis 8:21, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice, and he said to himself, I will never curse the ground because of the human race. Watch this. He continues and he says, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood, I will never destroy all things again. I don't know that humans knew it at the time. I don't know that they knew that sin was part of flesh, but God did. And God knows, I can destroy all living things, 
But sin will still be in the next generation of flesh and the next generation of flesh. It's not about God saying, I'm going to wipe out all sin because then you don't have freedom, right? If God makes the choices for us to take sin out of the picture, you have no opportunity to have freedom. God says, he says they're never going to be able to conquer or destroy sin, but they could fight the battle. They can absolutely recognize that the battle starts with recognizing. By recognizing that it's not our job to change the rules to fit what we want. It's not our job to rewrite the battle. It's not our job to bring God to our level. Rather, it's our job to live on his. Amen? Come back with me in the Romans chapter 7. We're going to finish up in verse number 21. Listen to what Paul says about the power struggle. Paul says, I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there's another part within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. You see, now you have Christ in you. You invited him into your heart, yes, in you, but sin still there. Constant battle. Point number three in your notes is this. Simply loving God does not release our body from the dungeon of sin. A person is created in the image of God. Very personal, living soul that is still in the image of God even after sin. This image and the ability to make choices and act upon them is still part of who you are. Even fallen man, even sinful man has freedom of choice. People who are saved still have a freedom of choice. People who are unsaved still have a freedom of choice. The question is, what do you choose? The question is, who do you choose? Let's ponder this for a moment. If humans were not free, but rather all of their acts were determined by God. Everything that you do, already predetermined by God. And that means that God is directly responsible for evil. Well, that's a conclusion. That's clearly contradictory to Scripture. I'm going to read you from the book of James chapter 1 for a moment. This is James 1, 13 through 17. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. He says, and remember when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our, watch this, our own desires 
which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Don't be misled, James says, verse number 16, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is, from, is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. The exercise of choice does not in itself make us free. Choice, rather, is only the conduit that we use that leads us towards a shroud of death or a chrysalis of new life. Freedom is not that we can choose, but rather what we choose. Freedom is not a status but rather, it is an achievement. It is indeed freedom for the Christian is a divine gift. You do have a freedom in Christ. And you do have that freedom to choose against that struggle, that temptation in your life. Paul writes this in Romans Chapter 6, I'm going to go back to chapter in verses 11 through 13. He says, so you should, he says, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. He says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. He's talking to believers now. It says, do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Paul is talking to people who know the gospel. He's talking in this book to people who know the truth. They know God's law. Like you and I, he's telling them, he's telling Christians, don't give in to your sinful desires. You still have them. He says, I know that they're real. I know it's a fight. I know that it's a burden. He's saying, don't give in. Spiritually, you were once dead. But when you came to Christ, there is new life. If you haven't come to Christ, I want you to know that, that there is a new spiritual life waiting for you. But you will still ask any Christian in this room or any Christian that you know, they will tell you this fact, you still have to battle sin. If you refuse to battle, sin wins. You have to battle 
The next words that Paul says in Romans chapter 7 are the same words that you and I will say when we fail. Listen to the failure and the guilt and the regret, but also the answer that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 7, verse number 24. Paul writes this, he's like, oh, he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I'm just going to stop right there. Isn't that the same thing that we say to ourselves in that moment that you look back? Like, I'm the only person that knows what I just did. What a miserable person I am. Deep breath. Who will save me from this? Verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So you see how it is, he says. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Here's the fourth and final point in your notes this morning. The freedom comes with a desire and a decision to live for and obey the words of Jesus. The freedom comes with the desire and the decision to live for and obey the words of Jesus. It would be foolish and delusional to confuse the ability to choose with the illusion that, our, that we are free because we could choose any way we please. Having the ability to choose is not freedom. Let me make something clear again this morning. Every choice you make is in obedience to a God. Many people in our world think that the ability that God gave to you and I to choose anything that we want means it's okay to choose anything that we want. You and I, Christian, are saved. Our soul has been saved. But sin still has consequences. Some people seek relief from this physical prison. That's where sin lives. We've talked about that in the, in the body, in the flesh, right? Some people f- look for and they find relief from this, this prison by looking for fake and, and, and false freedoms. Maybe philosophies, maybe mysticisms, wealth, power, rebellion. Other people find and look for that freedom through, through maybe, maybe drugs or busyness or, or really dropping out of life or abusing others. But if you call uppercase G God your God, then everything you do shines a light on him 
or shines a light for him. That means that you are witnessing to other people in everything that you do. You know, it's actually our duty to be a witness. Christians, it is your duty to be a witness. And I'm just not telling you because that's what the book says. I'm telling you that because that's what your heart desires. As somebody who loves God, somebody who comes close to Christ, your heart now has this duty. It has its desire to witness to others. And you will witness to others with what you do. I promise you, you will. You will witness about the God you are serving with everything that you do. If you detach yourself from the duty to tell others about Jesus, but you, are, but you claim that you are saved so that your sins don't matter, you know what you did? You just gave yourself a license to sin. My friends, that is a very counterfeit license. It's not a true license. It might get you into the world's cool club of super sinners who are going to to kind of rewrite the Bible, but it's not going to take the guilt away, I promise you that. A counterfeit license of freedom only satisfies the will of one person. You. My counterfeit License for freedom only satisfies one person, and that's me. It doesn't satisfy God. And a counterfeit license of freedom, watch this, this is so important. It draws you back. It draws you back into that slavery of passions that that living with this false license, it begins to become a license now that leads you back into this dance towards death. Ephesians 2.2, it says this, you used to live in sin. This is Paul again writing to the church in Ephesus. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the, the powers in this unforeseen, this unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Sometimes I can get up here and I could preach a whole lot of Bible talk with words like divine or agonies or triumph. I could speak words like illuminating and fundamental and maybe dominion and kingdom. Even words like witness and liberated and repentance. Those words can seem foreign to us in our world, but let me tie all of these back to biblical principles in your life. How do you become truly free? Well, first, it starts with an acknowledgement. An acknowledgement of sin. Paul writes this in Romans 3. 22, he says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. 
in order to place your faith in Jesus, you first have to acknowledge sin. We must recognize it for what it is. Because the closer you grow grow to Christ, the worse it's going to feel to continue growing in this world, to continue living in a worldly flesh. In your heart, there's a conflict when you come to Christ because your heart wants to do everything that it can to grow closer to Jesus at the same time the world is trying to pull you away again and again and again. John the, writes in John 14, verse 15, he says, this is Christ's words, if you love me, obey my commandments. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to them. You know how you could tell? You know how you, how you could tell a Christian? Jesus tells this because of their what? Love, right? You know how you can tell if somebody, somebody who loves Jesus, it's because they are obeying or in the process of working towards obeying his commands. You can't make up your own commands. We can't make them up and say that we're free to live by the rules that we make up. We're free to live by whatever we want to live by. That's not the way it works. See, the solution doesn't come by following the rules, though. The solution comes by following Jesus, amen? Jesus says this in verse 14 of the... Or in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, the truth. The truth is only Jesus can bring you freedom and forgiveness. That's the truth. But it's going to take a whole lot of Jesus to fight against a whole lot of this world. You live deep in this world, I know that. I live deep in this world. If we're looking for freedom this morning, we need to make sure we're looking in the right place. Finally, Jesus says this in John chapter 8, verse 31. He said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Will you give free time to uppercase G God Almighty this morning?